Welcome to The Art of the Impossible, a podcast for the design and manufacturing industry that explores how you can leverage technology, processes, and people to make the impossible possible. I'm Asif Mogul, Senior Industry Manager at Autodesk, and each week I'll be joined by experts from the design and manufacturing world to discuss their perspectives on the challenges our industry faces and share what they're doing to overcome them. From smart products, mass customization, digitization, supply chain resilience, and the convergence of once diverse industries, this podcast is for anyone that runs a design and manufacturing business who's interested in making things possible. You can subscribe by following us on Apple, Spotify, or via your favorite platform. Coming up with uh, world-changing ideas is something that every design and manufacturing company dreams about. And I think it's pretty well accepted that a really good idea executed at the right time has the power to create markets or create potential, create opportunity. But there's also a risk associated with that you know, kind of innovation. But despite all that, innovation seems to be something that we're all chasing. In fact, Steve Jobs famously said, um, innovation is something that distinguishes between a leader and a follower. And you know, we get the sense that we just want to be leaders. Um, so today we're going to discuss innovation. We're going to talk about how to, you know, what is it? How can you innovate inside a small to medium-sized business? And more importantly, how can you then take that innovation and then turn it into a business model? So my guest today is Matthew McLennan, who is a mechanical design engineer at Steve Vick International. So hi, Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Asif, uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to join you uh, on such an interesting subject, which uh, I Great. certainly hold close to my heart. <laughs> Matt, I wondered if you could just help set some context. If you could just tell the uh, listeners, uh, you know, who are Steve Vick International, what do you do, and you know your role within the business? Sure thing. So Steve Vick International has been around uh, since the early 80s in the UK and has branched out across the world at various different points doing various different things um, and is largely centered around uh, the decommissioning and rehabilitation of gas pipes. So uh, most of the underground gas network um, has gone through some sort of replacement program or rehabilitation program in those 40 years and we've been providing tools and techniques and you know consumable products and all, all kinds of different services to those industries and throughout that process we've developed all sorts of uh, interesting ways of uh, basically keeping people connected to the gas supply while the main industry is uh, replaced with new normally polyethylene uh, pipe and that's uh, certainly something that's kept the uh, people at Steve Vick International busy for the last 40 years. Um, my role there as a mechanical design engineer is, um, I think I probably cling on to the title of mechanical design engineer because it's very difficult to describe what it is I do. I'm probably more comfortable describing myself as a design engineer, mechanical design engineer, um, as even if it's a software uh, product or problem that I'm solving. I think if you... Uh, look at some of the work that I do day to day. Um, we run a, a, a Scrum uh, team to develop software, and in that role, I'm I, I would be classed as a product owner. So I represent the sort of the voice of the customer in the room, 
and uh, make sure that we sort of steer the product uh, in the right direction. And then someone will walk through the door and say, you know, I've got this um, part that needs to fit in this hole and I need to know about clearances and tolerances and I'll switch hats and jump into, um, uh, you know, the mechanical design role. Um, and then, so it's a, it's a very varied role, which I'm very glad occupying, but uh, we've certainly uh, done a lot of development in the last uh, few years and some of that development work has included Internet of Things products and uh, right. a little bit of chemistry as well. So it's, uh, it's been some, some fun along the way. Sounds fascinating. And, and you seem like you're no stranger to innovation yourself. And so uh, that, since that's the topic of today's um, episode, um, what I wanted to do, kind of get your take on is um, innovation, just, just like lots of terminology that's used in our industry today, is a great buzzword, isn't it? it and it's thrown around a lot. Um, and it can mean lots of different things to lots of different people. So Harvard Business Review talks about, you know, there's three types of innovation. There's transformative, adjacent and incremental, uh, and there's risk associated with all of that. But if you strip all that away and through the lens of, you know, you and your role and Steve Inc. International, what is innovation? What, what does it mean in, in the most practical, simplest of terms? If I was being particularly cynical, I'd say funding. <laughs> so, um, yeah, innovation is a is a buzzword, and we could spend the rest of the day talking about these semantics uh, for sure. Um, I think that innovation is something that puts into a frame funding. So the government can fund innovation through various different. Uh, avenues and mechanisms and companies are therefore incentivized to pick up on some of that um, encouragement if you like and slightly de-risk some of their own adventures um, by accessing innovation funding that said sometimes it can be a bit of a poison chalice um, and people will end up innovating for the sake of funding which i think is uh you know without getting too political i think that that's a slightly sort of poisonous um uh process where you just end up with expensive nonsense instead of uh you know useful uh, products or solutions or services but innovation to us is normally about the combination of um ideas rather than the invention of new ideas um and so you know kind of i guess if you like my my lens into that world is you can you can innovate your way to an incremental change um, and probably claim that you've been innovative um, you can also invent a new a completely new thing um, and you may find that the invention process was actually the really really easy bit and the innovation process is actually where the the kind of the hard work is found uh, I can't remember who uh, says it, but this, you know, it's one percent inspiration, ninety nine percent perspiration. Um, that I think that that's very true, um, and you know, sixty to eighty percent of most uh, innovation business, you know, businesses built around innovation will will probably fail. Um, it's it's really grueling, and and it comes with lots of risk. But I think um, if you can. I think that we've gone through a process of, you know, adapting to just-in-time manufacturing. And now I think we're in an age of just-in-time design. Um, things are so fast. And it's now pushed the 
the focus into the design space where you know, you've got this kind of huge manufacturing capability, uh, decentralized manufacturing, rapid prototyping, all these you know, great things. You can just uh, go online and get a quote for 40,000 widgets. It now become, the onus is now on the design uh, process in the, and that in idea, ideating, uh, you know, creating those new ideas. Um, and you need to be able to rapidly prototype them at the idea stage rather than at the manufacturing stage now. So you, you mentioned something really interesting there, actually, Matt. Um, you, t- you said the phrase combination of ideas. Yeah. And um, a lot of people that we speak to um, have a view that innovation is around the next big thing. And they, can, they always come up with the iPhone. You know, everybody yeah. wants to introduce an iPhone-type product into the world or an equivalent of it. Um, but what you were talking about is um, innovation can equally be about the combination of lots of small ideas. Mm. Um, and you also started talking about um, innovation isn't just about products. It seems to be about processes as well. Mm. So do you have a particular view on, on um, or examples actually of some small ideas that you know, you've personally connected in the business that have resulted in, in other innovation in terms of a product or, or a process? Yeah, and I think that the the iPhone is a great uh, example of a catch-all. Um, and in the same way as Steve Jobs is a great example of a catch-all. Um, and I think as a somehow as a species, we seem to be drawn to uh, this sort of reductive method where we take thousands and thousands, literally thousands and thousands of good ideas like the transistor and radio communication and capacitive touch, you know, and all, all of the great ideas that went into an iPhone and we just call it iPhone. Um, we seem to need like a kind of a monolith um, to represent uh, something. And in the same way, Steve Jobs combined, uh, you know, decades and decades of failed attempts to do uh, things and realize his ambitions. Uh, we quite rapidly look for the monolith example of his success uh, and him on stage in a, in a, in a pair of jeans um, setting the world straight <laughs> and introducing a new technology. So definitely rendering the uh, ideas into a single kind of like monolithic block that people can sort of talk about only happens in retrospect. In the here and now, of course, when they were developing the first iPhone, they didn't refer to it uh, as a single idea. And that's that's how it is day to day is, you, you know, you only really re- you only know it's a, uh, a single entity in retrospect. And so every day when you're developing the 480 issues you've got outstanding across your new product, um, you know, it looks like you've got an incredibly broad horizon of problems to solve. Um, and then when you look at it in three years' time, you can refer back to it as a single thing. So I, I think there's definitely a this combination um, is what happens naturally. And then you get these kind of big bang moments like, um, you know, the iPhone um, and other things like that, where you kind of get the culmination of all of these uh, things suddenly sort of uh, pop. And that's largely just about timing. Um, and it's either fortunate or very unfortunate. And I think lots of really great combinations of ideas have, have just ha- suffered poor timing. And um, uh, I'm sure we can touch on timing a bit more, but um, I think to go back to your question about um, you know, co- combination and what um, and what that looks like, in, in, from my point of view, I'll, I'll, one of the products that I created a few years ago was a combination of a pressure 
indicator, just to measure measure gas pressure, measure water pressure, and Bluetooth radio technology. Um, it's just two things that were very well supported ideas, and and the sort of the offspring of that, if you like, the carry, to, to really strangle the, the metaphor is is the the smart tester product, which is a wireless pressure indicator. Um, and that's a really good example, actually, Matt. And so, if you don't mind me saying, sort of pressure sensors and Bluetooth on their own, they don't sound really sort of sexy or exciting in, in mm. terms of you know how most people's perception of innovation are. Mm. But um, so there's a lot of that going on in the industries. People like, like yourself are com- combining you know this bit of technology with that bit of technology, and the result is something actually ver- that adds value. Mm. Um, so it seems to me that we are innovating quite a lot. Um, but what I'm curious about is why more people aren't looking at that as as valid a form of innovation as some of the deeper R and D projects that get uh, that get funded. Uh, so do you have a view on that? Well, yeah, I think there's. Um, if you look back at these sort of you know some other examples of of big bangs, you know, like powered flight was quite a good big bang, um, and the Wright brothers uh, will will always kind of like hold the title for for that. Um, if you look at how they arrived at their design and their method, um, it was not through sitting in a darkened room or wearing lab coats or doing anything in isolation. They were actually incredibly good at writing to people of similar interest, their peers, and gathering information. Um, they, they. <sighs> Compared to Langley, who was funded by the government, uh, Smithsonian, you know, and, and, and didn't get there in time, the Wright brothers did, um, largely because they shared ideas and were able to learn from uh, other people's failures that they kind of, if you, if you compare it to today's language, they crowdsourced, um, you know, their ideas as a part of their innovation. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really, really critical is... Uh, you know, there's the, the idea of, you know, fail fast, learn faster. Um, mm, yeah. and, and it's really, really important to make failing cost effective um, because you will not uh, walk that kind of tightrope uh, w- through product development um, and innovation without failures along the way. So you need to make uh, sure that you can fail in a cost effective way. Um, and sometimes that, uh, that presents itself as um, rapid prototyping, or it presents itself as you know 3D, uh, you know modeling of some new great big structure you're about to stick in the middle of something. Uh, but I think really uh, being able to get that uh, crowdsourced failure sheet, if you like, is one of the uh, best ways to to mature a design along. And, and to and to get that sort of inspiration bit, that uh, that one or two percent inspiration that you need. <laughs> it, it sounds like a really good best practice, which you know I would kind of summarise as um, gather information. I think you were talking about crowdsourcing people's opinion, um, mm. uh, trying to understand you know what that information tells you, and then sort of having the sort of courage to give it a go and, and sort of fail cost effectively. So if that was a best practice, um, obviously aside from yourselves and the work that you guys are doing. Um, can you think of any companies that you think excel at, at doing that process? It, well, I guess we're in a very interesting time. Um, coronavirus and lockdowns and pandemics 
Um, I'm sure that AstraZeneca would be a great example of innovation that mm-hmm. you you or I would, you know, just we, we wouldn't sympathize or understand with the sort of challenges they face. Um, but certainly the pharmaceutical industry has gone through um, an incredible forced um, innovation process where they've had to re- really reinvent the wheel. Um, that That's what innovation looks like. I mean, it's ugly and it's scary. Um, and, 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 and to be quite honest, like most people don't like innovation. Most people are naturally averse to innovation. Innovation is change. And, you know, a lot of people are very reluctant to change. So it has to be um, a, a culture. And if that's fostered in an organization or in a government or uh, in an NGO or whatever, then, uh, it, you know, it can present itself in many, many different ways. Innovation doesn't always look like um, a new iPhone. Uh, innovation is, is is very often just doing things uh, differently. Loads of that happening at the moment in the pharmaceutical industry, um, and I think also in things like uh, home shopping. You know, uh, Tesco's delivery service or whatever. It's been. I'm sure that supply chain logistics has gone through a massive transformation in the last yeah, six yeah. months um, and really had to innovate you know you've got products like um, Deliveroo uh, where now you don't think about um, uh, what restaurant you want to uh, get your takeaway from you go first to Deliveroo to see which ones they will give you access to you know, it's a completely different market window to look through um, but a really interesting product and a really interesting knock-on effect in the same way as, uh, you know, companies like Uber or uh, Airbnb have um, done these these sort of very, uh, if you like, upside-down business models um, with this sort of democratization of the workforce. Now, you mentioned something about Deliveroo, which I think actually, uh, to, to me, there's kind of great parallels between the Deliveroo examples you, you talked about and the manufacturing industry. So I think if we think about the food industry, um, what what got restaurants full was the fact that they had good quality food. Um, but it seems that good quality food isn't enough anymore. And how you get access to that food is a game changer. So I think traditionally people might have thought about let's open some more chains of you know restaurants. And there are many chains, um, but even that got to a point where actually uh, the value is somebody bringing me the food. And so if I think about the manufacturing sector, um, we traditionally design and make and sell products, and um, the product's performance and the functionality of that product seems to be the, the, the thing that would force and, or motivate someone to buy it. But there seems to be much more than just the product itself. It's how can you get it? How can you access it? There's, there seems to be like this kind of delivery bubble that needs to be wrapped around manufacturing to perhaps drive some further innovation. I know you guys have, have been sort of, you know, experimenting with stuff like that. You know, what, what's your view of um, innovation being not product related, but also being service related yeah absolutely that's that's um yeah you can buy all the parts and you can assemble them uh, yourself but uh, how about i do um you know box build for you as well so you're buying all of these bits for me so that i can send them to you and you can put them in your uh, your your product 
but if you just send me the three or four bits that you've got, I can build a whole thing for you and I can provide the test coverage and I can provide all of the you know, uh, change control management and I'll just manage product delivery as a service. Uh, how, how does that sound? You know, and it, that sounds like a really interesting product. You kind of take on the risk and you take on uh, some of the challenges and you've probably got the skills to do these things better than I have. So that sounds like a great partnership. Like, I think that that servitization is, has got tons and tons and tons of market space left to run. And so I think to, to do something like that, um, it, it seems or sounds like that, uh, again, in the context of, of our industry, we need to really understand what our customers value and then try and deliver it to them in different, better, differentiated ways. Um, and, it, and if we don't understand what our customers value, we can maybe just assume everybody, cheapest price is, is what I want, but then the quality will suffer. Uh, and in sort of your industry, poor quality could, could lead to some very you know, dire consequences, I guess. But how can more organizations, particularly SMEs, get better at understanding? If understanding customer value is a precursor to innovation, how can more SMEs get better at doing that? I think, uh, so certainly working on a kind of uh, hardware software project for the last couple of years and looking into the sort of software development sphere and taking some learnings from that, I guess I kind of go back to that uh, idea about, you know, just-in-time manufacturing is sort of old hat. You now need to do just-in-time design and being able to uh, get the feedback loop um, well, well greased. You know, you you've really, really got to be. You've got to have really good friends in sales um, who really trust you and with with their customer. You know, that's the other thing. It's the kind of it's a two way street. You can't just be the designer that sort of knows everything um, and doesn't share anything. So the engagement with the customer is really a fascinating part of innovation for me i that's probably the bit that's the joy that i get if you like um second to solving problems um so being able to sympathize with the customer is absolutely critical um and then that's that's nothing new of course you know it's nothing to do with innovation that same applies for just you know selling selling the same old thing and getting the one of the developers that I work with, uh, he, also, he always sort of begins with this walk the path, walk the path. So even if you're trying to do some kind of, you know, uh, automation of data handling into some MI model to realize some great visualization uh, that tells you uh, how many square feet of you know carbon you've saved this month or something you know you're trying to arrive at a thing he will always insist on walk the walk the process so you go right the way back to to the sort of bare bones of it and with paper and pen in hand not relying on you know digital tools and all the rest of it walk through the process with the customer what is the data gathering that they're expecting? How do they do it at the moment? What are the problems with transferring that? How, you know, really go down to the granular, at the atomic level of a, of a process or a service or a product. Um, and so, so literally mapping out the process. Yeah, and, and, and like no level of detail um, is ever enough. You know, you can just go right down, right down, right down, and you start to uncover these 
fabulous insights that you you and your sales team would never ever have engaged with a customer uh, to elicit those needs but suddenly from your viewpoint you can see oh hang on a minute we've just done 16 steps and if i just provide you with a shortcut between these uh, two you can bypass all of this stuff that's of no value would we you know would that be of interest to you and all of a sudden you've kind of you 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 have done it you've done a little innovation there you know that gold star <laughs> it's probably not an iteration it's probably not you know what you were doing yesterday but a bit you know cheaper quicker you know shinier it's probably an innovative moment there where you've you've really got right down to that uh, real you know you 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 can taste the mud in your mouth kind of uh, level of detail um, with the with the customer and really understood their problem. Well, Matt, if you, if you don't mind me saying it, it, it sounds so easy to do that actually, <laughs> and it just kind of makes me wonder why um, why more people aren't doing it. Because I mean, it just sounds totally logical and hundred percent common sense. Talk to your customers and yeah, understand yeah. them. Why do you think more more organisations uh, aren't doing it? Again, particularly um, in the SME space. Yeah, I think the same things that stop people doing most things, it's normally fear. Um, and that's either... But fear, fear of what? What, what? what do you think they're afraid of? Yeah, and I think there's a there's a, a plethora um, of things to be, uh, you know, afraid of. So there's engaging with your customer and finding out that the product that you've got at the moment is rubbish. I think people are terrified of that. Um, and proving proving their previous product wrong. I think that's something that holds a lot of people back is... Uh, and that's why iteration is so popular, because you can say, "Oh, it's just as good as the last one, but it's got this slightly new, you know, thing on it." Um, so, but it's better, yeah. But it, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a bit better, yeah. And it's like, you know, the, why, why is there an iPhone 10? The iPhone was so good, you know. And it's that iterative process, you know. So people are much more comfortable with iteration for change management, and it makes more sense, you know, because there's not such kind of a uh, uh, a sea change. One of the other things that I think is very difficult for people to confront is that their existing business model may very well not support the solution that you arrive at, and that's really confronting. Um, so that's that's kind of even bigger change being threatened. Is that, oh my god, we have to do something radically different? Yeah, and and if you're you know, and, and I think all companies suffer this. Uh, you've got these huge mountains to climb to often prove the either the technical validity or the business sense or you know all of these other things to uh, confront. So innovation can really tear open unexpected spaces in a in a business, and if the business isn't prepared to nurture and foster that then then it'll just you know smother it and it will just be an, uh, an iteration but does it have to be like a one or the other uh, or, or could 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 you do could you do I'm, I'm just referencing the harvard business review study from uh, i apologize i can't remember when it was written but it talks about um, incremental innovation which is some of the things that you were touching on sort of combining lots of existing stuff to make something just as good as the old thing but a little better mm. um, adjacent innovation um, how to take something and put it into a brand new market. So, um, so for example, some of your pipe inspection technology, could it be used in different markets, like so medical as a, as, a, as a really unqualified example, and, um, and, and transformative innovation, which is everybody thinks of as like the Steve Jobs, you know, here's the new iPhone. Now, H, HBR talk about there's no one right. You don't just pick one. No. Um, you kind of need to pick a balance of them. Would you say, again, for an SME, that, that that's kind of, 
realistic and, and reasonable or, or you know should they just pick one or two of those types i think that most uh most people that i've worked with over the last you know 10 15 years um in that sort of new new product space or new idea space um would say that it's definitely a blend and very very unlikely that you will do transformative um you'll probably do transformative by accident if at all um, no i yeah. don't think anybody ever plans to do transformative <laughs> <laughs> um it's something you know like um a plan never survives contact with the enemy you know? <laughs> uh, yes. uh, so, um so don't ever uh waste your time planning to do transformative um but just be ready to do it by accident (laughs) is the uh... that's a really really interesting way of looking at it because i'm just wondering how many people set off with this you you see it in kind of like um workshops that people run and and, you know sort of books that people have written you know how to develop the next you know transformative example but you know from what you and i are talking about um, the Big Bang only happens if you are open enough to do lots of small changes and just just be ready for, you know, we might stumble across the next penicillin or we might stumble across the next iPhone or the next kind of game changer. Um, I'm not sure that that many people probably think of it in those terms. So it is a really interesting way to look at it. And I think that I probably thought that that's how innovation worked, um, you know, before I suffered the scars, slings, arrows, burns, bruises, sweat disappointment (laughs) is is that all you need is a good idea you know and i'm sure that that was you know what i was told was all you need is a good idea or uh follow your heart and the money will follow or you know a kitten hanging from a tree (laughs) with some other slogan yeah those sort of social media type uh yeah inspirational things that's right but the, the you know the truth of it is i think uh and we sort of started to talk about timing earlier on and i think that timing is is one of those uh key components in it we 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 can't get away from timing um it's absolutely embedded in our existence in the universe um uh and i think that as time goes on uh things accumulate around us and it's a bit like a kind of a wave you know when you're sort of walking along the beach you'll see the sort of the waves will just be uh you know gently just sort of uh washing up against the sand and then every now and again every sort of third or fourth one they'll come rolling in and there'll be a crash. Um, but for the rest of the time, they just kind of build and ebb and flow. And then every now and again, you get a crash. And I think that that's all those sort of big bang moments are, you, you know, your classic sort of iPhone things. It's just the wave was just right to crash. Uh, it's just all that, all that Steve Jobs did was be, uh, you know, <laughs> all that Steve Jobs did, Matt. Come on. <laughs> finish that sentence <laughs> you, can, you can maybe say one of the many things one of the steve many jobs things achieved. that steve yeah. jobs got right in a in a sort of you know uh in a background of the world on fire uh all of his you know sort of hard work behind him um pinnacle of his career of course you know <laughs> he he managed to somehow sew together enough innovation all in one wave crash with the right amount of marketing, the right amount of um, ambition. One of the things that I kind of constantly try and uh, focus on is trust, enablement, and vision. 
as the sort of the three things that I'm constantly trying to keep a check on, constantly trying to keep a measure on. And I think if you lose any of those three things, then the kind of the, the triangle is no longer supported. Um, what I'm taking from like our, our chat is that innovation doesn't have to be that big bang idea. In fact, from what we're saying, um, in the big bang comes as a result of doing other stuff first. And it sounds like you need to kind of have a good, long, hard look at how you currently do things. It sounds like companies, again, particularly in the SME sector, really need to kind of understand what their customers value. And the only way to do that is to get closer to them and then kind of look at what they're currently doing and how they can combine lots of smaller things, which are probably easier to achieve, that can add, deliver that value to those customers in, in different ways. And then just step back and be ready for, oh my God, what, what happens? <laughs> in a worst case scenario, we do disrupt the industry. We come up with something transformative to, to, to kind, of, kind of be ready for it. And I think that there's an awful lot of... Um you know risk profiling and risk management that goes into this if you are risk profiling and risk managing you're probably not innovating it's just it's a really really difficult space to operate in and um you can iterate perfectly successfully there's nothing to be ashamed of <laughs> like make your product better go and do it and and, and and don't look back but if you want to do innovation then your risk model has to be this should be able to fail. That's that's as much as you need to know. Is this we need to be able to survive if this goes completely belly up? And that sort of uh, attitude often brings about a kind of a complacency that it doesn't really matter if it works or not because we'll still be here tomorrow. So that's where you've got to get that kind of trust um, uh, from you know the people that you're asking uh, great ideas uh, of. And so, so, you know, we, we are going to try our damnedest to make this thing work. Uh, in order for the business to survive, we probably need to, um, you know, be able to survive if this doesn't work. Um, and and that's, the, uh, that's the closest to risk management I think you're allowed to get until you're just iterating. You're not really innovating. Um, obviously, most people try and do a great idea very well and suddenly do a steve jobs uh on it uh sorry steve to continually bring you back from the dead but this is uh this is innovation after all <laughs> but i i think ti timing i just yeah kind of uh feel like i've got a thing to say about timing and what i said earlier on about um being ready for it to be transformative is i think there's a timing is used as, a, as an excuse for most things like the timing wasn't right we didn't succeed because the timing wasn't right and i think the truth of it is you need to get past that if you're to do innovation you need to accept that you might come up with an idea a product a service or whatever that is pretty transfer you know this is pretty good you know this is going to really upset the market um this is really going to put us right in the middle and this is going to be great uh, for the business and you need to be able to um, have patience and to be able to sit on it and think well it doesn't really matter if somebody comes up with exactly the same idea as us because it's not first to market it's best to market that's going to win this right yeah. yeah so timing timing should never hold you back uh, you can always be late you can only be on time once. 
So you can kind of get the importance of uh, being able to develop a product and have the patience to sit on it and say, well, actually, Google Glass is a great example. Like That was a compromise. What they really wanted to deliver was in-vision display, augmented reality, uh, probably with implanted lenses. They had to compromise and ask people to wear glasses as the technology isn't there for yeah, the yeah. vision. And so you end up with a compromise and the compromise very rarely succeeds anyway. So you've got this kind of combining these fabulous technologies right on the bleeding edge of their uh, development, all kind of combined into a single unit, it's monolith. People can put on a pair of Google glasses and uh, see the world in a whole new way. And it was, it was universally rejected. You know, it, it, it's, it was very, very poor adoption. Uh, culturally, there were massive problems. The timing was, was rubbish. Um, and that's nothing to do with uh, whether or not the technology was ready. You know, you, you, the Wright brothers proved that. You know, the technology wasn't really there for powered flight, but they managed to do it as bicycle mechanics. Um, not to take anything away from the Wright brothers, but they were yeah, bicycle yeah. mechanics. Um, I think yeah, timing is a really, really critical issue. And getting that wave, knowing that you're on the wave that's going to break or the wave that's just going to ebb and flow is, is really, really tricky and probably something you'll only ever be able to appreciate in retrospect. But racing, racing to market to, to not be late is probably worse than sitting on it, making sure that everything else is right before you release it. And you can always iterate in reverse. That's one of the great powers of a good idea, is if the good idea is out in the future, you can iterate your way towards it. And that's still a fantastic business plan, not just to kind of release it tomorrow. Yeah, it's that dilemma of kind of over-engineering something yeah. to try and get sort of perfection. So um, yeah, some, some fascinating insights there, Matt. So I think my sort of final um, sort of question to you would be, um, let's say that you and I are sat uh, somewhere and we're kind of giving advice uh, 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 an SME manufacturer another sort of you know um, 100 to 150 employee size organization comes in and says what's the what's the one thing I can do to create an environment inside my business that would allow the sorts of innovation that you know we've just been talking about so what what would you say to the that that leader Good ideas don't respect hierarchy. So I think if you are leading um, a small business today, um, then you already have a team of people with really good ideas. Being able to extract and collate and weigh and measure and manage those ideas is an art in itself. Uh, obviously, you know, incentivizing and all the rest of it is is a technique. Um, so you've already got those brains walking around your uh, production facilities, your design departments, your all the rest of it. You know, your company is teeming with good ideas. If there are um, opportunities for people to uh, share those ideas beyond the water cooler, shall we say, then I think. There's thousands and thousands of techniques and ways of extracting those good ideas. Um, and obviously, there will be one that suits you know, your specific needs. But 
you've got to be able to provide that you know trust enablement and they will provide the vision um and if it's something that people have got a particular passion for a particular bent for improving uh the way that you deal with i don't know whatever customer returns process or something if it if that's that person's got a particular passion for that giving them the space and the freedom and i think freedom is one of those kind of words that gets used a lot in the innovation space um freedom being the uh, parent of innovation or something like that um but it's it's one of those um uh, special words the difference between freedom and liberty uh, is really important there as well and uh, if someone's got the freedom to uh, express their ideas and trusts you that you are going to uh, honor that idea and it's not they're not going to feel um, like you've stolen the idea I think that's really important people people feel that their ideas belong to them uh, it's a bit like the um, Matt Ridley book uh, where they, the beaver stands in front of the Hoover Dam and says to the rabbit yeah I know it's pretty big but it's based on my idea there's, there's often a feeling uh, among people that the business is out to steal their ideas um, so I think you need to be very clear about recognition and value. Uh, so if somebody's idea produces a, you know, a, a half a million pounds saving on manufacturing costs, like <laughs> really, really recognize them. <laughs> like, and I, I suppose the, the reverse of that is true as well, is if, if something doesn't go wrong, obviously not penalize or punish somebody for, uh, for an idea that didn't work, I guess. And, and that's, I think, be, be, be able to afford to fail. It's the most important thing. And you can either make failing really cheap or have loads of money, you know, uh, one or the other. Uh, so I think it's a Jeff Bezos thing, I think, isn't it? It's failed fast. You know, it's, it's yeah. one of those really critical things that you need to be able to get those ideas um, from your teams, from your uh, staff, from your colleagues, from your coworkers, from your customers, even better if you can get them from your customers. Uh, turn them into innovative ideas rather than just inventions. Uh, we're fantastic at imagining and storytelling. Um, you've got this sort of environment in which people can share ideas freely and have a laugh. Um, uh, that's another thing that we practice uh, at <laughs> Steving International is uh, April Fool's products. So uh, we, we obviously, we never make them and we never, we never tell anybody about them. <laughs> Breaking the covenant by talking to you about it. <laughs> But the uh, uh, April. Don't worry, no one's listening. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) April Fool's products. It's a fantastic way of getting some funny ideas out there, and it's through those kind of conversations where you think, like, what's the what's the the most daft thing we could come up with, and really press upon people to come up with a more and more and more ridiculous idea, and before long, you will have built a list of very very good ideas. It's a dangerous game to play. Um, our April Fool's product lineup has been frighteningly uh, productive um, and makes forces you to think about things in ways that you have no need to think about things uh, because all of the it's, it's the magic theater. Like anything's possible. So obviously this has been a fascinating conversation, Matt. And so I'm just going to see if I can kind of summarize uh, I think what I've learned. Um, so innovation is a big word. It can mean many, many different things to different people. 
Um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that big idea. It could be small ideas. Um, innovation seems to apply to the products that we design and make, um, the business models that take those products out there, and also um, the processes that, that we kind of follow. So kind of it's, it's all fair game. And um, I think that what we're saying is that if we want to get better at innovation, um, we really need to do a couple of things. So first of all, get close to our customers. And I think it's we talked about internal or external customers. What do they value most? And I think one of the other things is, are they ready to pay for it? Uh, to be sort of slightly mercenary, because we, we do need to monetize this stuff. Kind of understanding that. Secondly, understanding how we're currently delivering that value to those people. And then to your most current point, trust and enable your teams to get together and start combining ideas so we can think outside of the box, you know, be, be crazy like your April Fool's kind of, um, and then be ready to recognize or, or not punish people for success or failure. And then just literally be ready as a business, be ready to succeed, just plod along, succeed big, which is the big bang, or, we, or kind of even fail. So I'm, I'm first of all, I want to thank you very much for uh, joining us on the podcast today. It's been, been great having you. <laughs> it's been great to talk to you as, as ever. And um, I hope that uh, those of you that have been listening to this, uh, this episode, I hope there's some snippets or golden nuggets of practical information that you feel you could take and start imp- employing you know, inside your daily work or your daily business, whether you push this kind of message up the chain or down the chain. So thank you very much for listening and we'll talk to you again on the next episode.